Is there a sorrier word in the English language than the word broken? Your sobbing child holds out a favorite toy and says, it's broken, daddy. The doctor looks at the x-ray and says, I'm afraid it's broken. Does anything hurt more than a broken promise or a broken heart or a broken home? Think of the synonyms, shattered, smashed, ruined, wrecked. Think of the feelings that follow after something's broken, sad, hurt, angry, disappointed. When something's broken, it's no longer as, as beautiful or as useful or as valuable as it once was. And there's a sense of finality about it, of catastrophe. And like Humpty Dumpty, we wonder if it can ever be put back together again. And sometimes... That's how we feel about our world. Today we're beginning a new series for a new season, a season that we call Lent. Begins this Wednesday officially with Ash Wednesday. As the ashes suggest, it's not a season of celebration. It's a season of reflection and repentance. To search out our hearts and our community and our world for what's wrong to grieve over it and to bring it out in the open and ask God to do something with it. And our premise for the series is that there's much that's broken in our world. In fact, it sometimes seems to be so broken that we, we wonder if it can ever be put right again. And it seems like the longer we look at what's broken in the world, we begin to realize that something's broken in us too. And we wonder if we can ever be made whole again. Now we're going to need some guidance as we journey into this uncomfortable and unfamiliar territory. So we're going to turn to a collection of writings known to us as the Minor Prophets. Now they're not called minor because they were short in stature. <laughs> they're called minor because their books were shorter in length than the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But believe me, they pack no less of a punch than those other prophets. So a word of preparation is in order as we kind of delve into this series and to these writings. One scholar calls uh, the prophets the most disturbing people who ever lived. Prophets were not popular people. They were blunt. They were extreme. They were angry. In our terminology, they had no filter. <laughs> Prophets didn't have a politically correct bone in their body. And they somehow managed to make everybody mad at them at the same time. All this to say, we should expect these prophets and this series to make us uncomfortable once in a while. In fact, if, if we're not uncomfortable, if... If we don't come to some moments where we feel like getting up and saying, hey, wait a minute, then we're probably not hearing them well or maybe not preaching them well. Remember, these guys were prophets, not pastors. Prophets get to ride into town, rattle everybody's cage, and then leave and go off to another church. <laughs> pastors have to stick around and pick up the pieces. Pastors have to live with the stuff they say week after week after week and have to encourage and affirm and comfort along life's way. 
Prophets get to tear the place down. Pastors have to build it up again. So we are more pastoral than prophetic in our teaching typically, but we're going to ask your permission for these next weeks to be just a bit more prophetic. And so that means we're going to, along the way, touch on some of the, the social and political challenges and issues that face our world today. Now, we're not going to do that in a partisan way. Our purpose is certainly not to propose or endorse political strategies for solving these problems. Our purpose is simply to name the problems, to grieve over them, and to consider what Scripture might have to say to us about how we respond to them. And more importantly, our purpose in this series is to ask God to speak to us about what's broken in us so that we might perhaps be put back together again. So all this to say that if somewhere along the way in this series, if you feel like uh, getting up and walking out of the room, it probably means we're getting somewhere, all right? But I'm going to ask you not to do that. I'm going to ask you to hang in there with these prophets, hang in there with us, believing that God has something important to do in us so that we can do something important in the world. So now that we're all nice and relaxed, let's, let's dive into this journey, okay? Let's meet the first of these characters, um, a man who was given perhaps one of the most disturbing assignments in all of Scripture. His name is Hosea, and his book comes at the beginning of our collection. Now, since we are doing one prophet a week, we'll do eight of them, we're going to have to jump in and out of them to get a feel for the whole book. So that's what we'll be doing here. So you can follow along in your scriptures or on the screens if you like. But let's begin with Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, a quick history geography lesson is probably in order here. All these prophets ministered during the days of the divided kingdom. Remember that for many generations, Israel was a united kingdom, serving under one king, Saul, then David, then Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom divided north and south. The ten northern tribes made their capital of Samaria, and they were typically called Israel or Ephraim. The two tribes to the south, Benjamin and Judah, made their capital in Jerusalem, and they are typically referred to in the scriptures as Judah. They're surrounded by other nations, most of them hostile, Edom, Moab, Ammon, and then lurking always up to the north and uh, the east there is the mighty nation of Assyria, which as time went by would threaten all of those nations. So the prophets ministered in that kind of a world. Now, some of them ministered primarily to the northern kingdom, others primarily to the southern kingdom, but their messages kind of applied both ways. We're going to look at eight of the prophets. These are the eight that we'll look at in our series. You can see that the two kingdoms, north and south, followed similar trajectories and that at a certain point, they, they came to an end. At a certain point, they, they failed to respond to the message of the prophets and they were overrun. The northern kingdom by Assyria in 721 and the southern kingdom by Babylon in 586. So the prophets were sent by God to warn the people of these impending judgments and to urge them to turn back to God while there was still time. And as we can see from the outcomes, their messages were not well received. 
Now, Hosea appears at the front of the collection, not because he came first chronologically, but because his book is the longest of the 12, and because his theology is foundational to the rest of the book, rest of the books. So we don't know a lot about Hosea, except for the fact that he was given a very disturbing assignment. Let's read about it in the next couple of verses. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So the Lord commands Hosea, who we have to believe was a godly and righteous man, to marry a promiscuous woman. Now there's some debate as to whether she was promiscuous before the marriage or just after the marriage, marriage. But, but either way, Hosea was told to marry her knowing that she was going to be unfaithful to him. And not just to marry her, but to build a family, to build a home through her. And later on, we're going to discover that she was in fact unfaithful to him in the most public and humiliating way. Now, this is a strange thing for a holy God to ask of one of his servants. But it turns out that Hosea and his marriage and his family were to be a kind of object lesson for the entire nation, a lived-out parable for them. Hosea was not just going to speak a message, he was going to live a message. And it was not an especially happy message. In the next few verses, we're told that Hosea had three children by Gomer, and listen to the names God told him to give those children. Jezreel, which means scattered. Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. And Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Now my guess is you wouldn't have found those names in the most popular baby name book of the day. And chances are they were symbolic names, not the names that Hosea would use when he was calling his brood in for dinner. But they were symbolic names. And how difficult this all must have been for Hosea, scandalous even, to be called into this kind of a life. And how, how difficult for the people to be told that they were like Gomer, unfaithful, adulterous, and that their destiny was to be scattered, not loved, and no longer his people. Why? I mean, what had they done that was so bad that God should be so angry as this, to give up on them, to abandon them? Why such extreme measures here? And we're, we're likely to ask the same questions. Is this the same God we've been singing about for the past few minutes, who's loving and good and kind and merciful? The same God? who now is so angry? And is it possible that he looks at us the same way as unfaithful, adulterous people? Could, could the same kind of fate be awaiting us, that we would be not loved, that we would be scattered? Well, let, let's jump ahead to chapter 4 and see what Hosea and the Lord are so upset about. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. So it's a courtroom scene. Hosea is the prosecuting attorney. The nation of Israel are the defendants. 
and the Lord is both plaintiff and judge, which is a scary scenario if you're the defendant. And the charge is unfaithfulness. Now, each week in this series, we're going to be identifying one thing that's broken in the world and in us. And this week, that thing is unfaithfulness, infidelity. And that's the foundational concept. That's why this book comes first. Because to be unfaithful is to break faith. It's to break a promise. It's to break a commitment. It's to break a covenant. And that's what the people had done with God, broken. Now, when two people are married, they come together, a husband and wife, and they pledge to love and cherish one another in sickness and in health till death do us part. But when one of them goes off to love and cherish someone else, they have broken the covenant. And that does harm to each of them and to the relationship and to the society of which they are a part. It's about broken covenant. And that's why Jesus likens divorce to adultery and even lust to adultery. He's not saying they're equivalent. He's saying all of them involve the breaking of a covenant, of a promise, the breaking of faith. And when that happens, it hurts. It does damage to everyone involved and to the world around. And that's what Israel has done to God. They have been unfaithful to him. Remember, God had, a, had set up a covenant with them. I'll be your God and you be my people. You walk in my ways and I will bless you in ways you can't possibly imagine. And God had kept up his part of the covenant. But Israel had broken theirs again and again and again. And in the next few verses, Hosea, the prosecuting attorney, goes on to name the charges. He says... There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Well, we know the Lord had given his people ten commandments, we call them. Actually, they were ten words. Ten ways of being in the world that would allow them to experience all the goodness of God in the world. The, the prophet names five of them here. Cursing, lying, stealing, adultery, murder. Five of them that they'd broken. But the truth is they had broken all of them. And even more than that. He says they, have, they break all bounds or they break all vows. What the Lord is reminding them and reminding us of is that faithfulness ultimately is not about keeping rules. It's about keeping a relationship. God didn't give us these 10 words to, to control us, to keep us from having fun. He gave us these words to protect our relationships with him and with each other. He gave us these ways of being in the world so that we could have happy and healthy and productive lives and long-lasting lives that would bless us and the world around us. And when we, when we break those things, when we do any of the things named here, when we, when we use destructive language... When we don't tell the truth, when we rob another person of life, when we take something that's not rightfully ours, when we set our affection on someone other than our spouse, we're being unfaithful to God, 
to others and to the community. Now Jesus simplifies matters. He distills the ten words down to two, but we've broken both of them as well. We have not loved God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So we're not just breaking rules. We're breaking relationships. And if you think a broken toy or a broken bone or a broken heart hurts, a broken relationship is the most painful and devastating of all. And so the prophet begins by naming what's broken, our covenant with God and each other. Because if we ever hope to be made whole again, if we ever want the toy or the bone or the heart to be made whole, to be restored, we have to identify what's broken. We have to name it. We have to own it. So that's where Hosea begins. But then he goes on to do something else. He doesn't just name what's broken. He now laments what's broken. Let's jump to verse 3. Because of this, he says, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish in the sea are dying. Now notice, when we break faith with God and each other, it doesn't just hurt us and other people. The earth itself, the very planet on which we live, suffers. It ceases to flourish the way it was meant to. Because of this, the land mourns. That's a powerful word. To mourn is to grieve. It's to be sorrowful. It's to lament. And the prophets, these minor prophets, spend a lot of time lamenting what's wrong with the people and the world. Because it turns out if we're ever going to be made whole again, we have to not just name what's wrong. We have to lament what's wrong to grieve it, to feel for it, how awful it is and how damaged we are. And friends, this lament, this is what's so often missing from the rancorous, polarized, angry cultural moment in which we find ourselves. This ability to simply lament Instead of naming and grieving over what's wrong, we immediately rush to blaming someone, some party, some group. We immediately rush to defend our position and to demonize those who might see things differently. We rush to judgment about people who disagree with us. And this happens even in the household of faith. We rush to solutions trying to fix what's broken before we ever really even understand what's broken or why it's broken and how it feels to be part of that brokenness. Let me try to illustrate what this looks like. Hardly a week goes by that we don't hear about another mass shooting in our country. In fact, it happened yesterday. But before we start arguing about gun control or lobbying about constitutional rights, before we start all of that, can we simply acknowledge the fact that the United States is the most violent of all the developing nations on the face of the earth? By far, 
the most deaths by violence of all the developing nations. Mass shootings in which more than four people die in the same incident happen at a rate of one per day in our country last year. And again, it happened just yesterday. Something is broken. Many things are broken about that. Can we simply acknowledge that, own it, and lament it before we rush to try to figure out what to do about it? Similarly, abortion is a complicated and controversial topic. And I know there are all sides to that problem. I understand that there are a variety of views as to when life begins. I understand that there are many different ways to be pro-life. I understand that we live in a democratic society. I understand all of that. But if we are ever going to have a meaningful and constructive conversation about this, can we first just lament the fact that every year in our country, nearly a million pregnancies are terminated. Which means that nearly a million unborn children don't get to take a breath in this world. And an equal number of women bear the burden of what has to be an agonizing decision and experience. Can we just lament that? Even, even liberal-leaning politicians will acknowledge that, that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. So can we start there by acknowledging and grieving that reality and then find a way forward? Can we lament the fact that people of color make up 30% of the general population and 60% of the prison population? Something's broken there. Can we lament the fact that there are some 60 million displaced people in our world today? And that their chances of finding a stable place to resettle this year are less than 1%. A less than 1% chance this year of finding a stable home for their family, which is no different than your family. Can we just lament that? And if your response to any of these things is to say, yeah, but, then you're missing the point. There's a yeah, but to every one of these challenges. But can we first just agree that something's wrong here? Many things probably. And can we lament with those who are hurting because of it? And if we'll listen carefully, if we'll listen to the heart of what's being said, this is what's at the heart of, of the Black Lives Matter movement and the hashtag Me Too movement. Communities of people who are asking us simply to listen and understand the realities of, of their daily experience. African Americans are not saying that only black lives matter. And women are not saying that all men are abusers. They're simply saying this is a reality that we face and feel every day. Can you face it with us? Can you stand with us in this painful moment? And then perhaps we can begin to find a way forward. Amen. Amen. And since we're talking, let's get a little personal. 
Several Sundays ago, I was in a sermon, I was telling a story about an African-American friend of mine. And to make the story more interesting, I said something stupid and hurtful. Something just plain wrong. Something that perpetuates stereotypes and marginalizes an entire community of people. And I felt that as soon as I said it, and a couple people called me on it afterwards, and rightfully so, I was embarrassed and ashamed and deeply sorry, and still am. It happened that the next Sunday was Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And I was off that Sunday, and we happened to be worshiping at another church in our area. Good, strong, vibrant church. And I sat and listened as a couple of people from the platform, a man and a woman, both of them white, prayed and spoke into some of the racial aspects of the particular weekend and the message. And, and as I listened, I, I know their intentions were right, and I know that I have prayed and said some of the very same things on that very same weekend, but somehow sitting there after what had happened, it just, it just sounded lame to me. It just it felt patronizing somehow. And as I thought about what I had done the week before, and as I thought about black friends who sit through moments like that time and time and time again, I just began to lament the whole thing. I said to Karen afterwards, why are we so bad at this? When, when are we ever going to begin to get this right to understand? That previous Sunday, one, uh, one woman was so troubled by what I had said that she actually had to leave the room, went out to the lobby to compose herself. Now, thankfully, she didn't leave the building or didn't leave the church. She hung in there. She had the courage and the honesty to have a conversation with me. We began to understand each other, and we have more conversations to be had. And if you'd like to be a part of some of these conversations, please let us know because they're beginning, beginning to happen around our community. Because we can't give up on each other. We can't give up on these challenges. And so that's what it means to lament something. It's to name it. It's to own it. It's to feel it. And to say together, this stinks. This is wrong. This is not the way we and the world were meant to be. Lament is life in a minor key. It feels unresolved. And so we want to get out of it. But we dare not get out of it too quickly, lest we miss something important happening in us. Something that has to happen in us before it can happen in the world around before we can turn and begin looking and moving in new and better directions. So by now, I imagine you're feeling ready to look in a new and better direction. So let's do that. Let's move to Hosea chapter 11, one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible. I'm hardly going to have to explain it because the words themselves are just so healing. Hosea 11, beginning at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. 
It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Friends, this is the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, speaking about us, about his people. What tenderness there is here, taking them by the arms, lifting them to the cheek. And what brokenness there is here, brokenness of heart. The more I called them, the more they went away. They didn't realize I was the one who loved them. How many parents can identify with these feelings? But friends, he's not just talking about those ten tribes. He's talking about you and he's talking about me. He's been faithful to us, but we have been unfaithful to him. And so how can you blame him? How can you blame him for being so hurt and angry he just wants to give up on us? To let us scatter to our own devices. To say, they're not my people. Who would blame him? But look at what he does. Verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? Notice, he doesn't call them Jezreel or Lo-Ami. How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? These were two godless, wicked nations that had been judged earlier. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. God's heart is broken, but it is still beating. Beating with love for his people. Beating in love with, with love for us in spite of our foolishness and our unfaithfulness. And you know why? Because he's God. He's not like us. He's not a man. He's not a woman. God is faithful. We are not. God keeps his promises. We do not. God never gives up. And we give up on ourselves, on each other, on this world, and on him. But God does not. And this is what we mean when we say that God is holy. When we say God's holy, we're not just saying he's pure and he's perfect and he's righteous. We're saying he's other. He is different. He is so far above and beyond who we are. We think we're merciful. We think we're kind. We think we're just. We have no idea what merciful and kind and just looks like. That's him. He is faithful. We are not. And so if we ever hope to be made whole again, at some point we have to turn and look to him. Look to the one who made us in the first place, who knows how to put us back together again. And so that's what Hosea urges them and us to do in his final chapter, verse four, chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And in the closing verses, Hosea goes on to describe how the Lord is going to heal their land and love them freely and lavishly so they once again will be the talk of the world and they will flourish. But notice the phrase, take words with you and return to the Lord. He's telling them and us to name it. Name what's broken, cursing and lying and swearing and adultery and murder. Lament it, feel it, own it, 
violence and poverty and injustice and racism and abuse. Name it, own it, feel it, and then turn from it and turn to the one, greater one, who's able to put us back together again. And so that's where we conclude this message and where we begin our journey with this simple truth that what's broken can be restored when we name it, lament it, and turn from it to the only one who can make us whole again. That one is God, not man and not woman, the one who loved us from the beginning and still does. Now, unfortunately, we know from history and from our timeline that the nation of Israel, those ten tribes, did not respond well to Hosea's message. They walked out of the room. And so, as was predicted, they fell to Assyria in 721, and they were, in fact, scattered among the nations. And it looked for all the world as though God had abandoned his people. But when the time was right, the scripture tells us, God sent his son, born of a woman. He sent his son into this world. He himself came down to reclaim his adulterous bride, to bring home his lost children. Jesus, by his life and his death and his resurrection, restores us to a right relationship with God so that we can once again and forever be his people when we turn to him in faith. I don't know if you happened to catch the Grammy Awards on a couple of weeks ago, but the musician, the artist, singer, Sam Smith, was up for an award. And so at one point in the show, he sang one of his songs. It's simply called Pray. In the opening lines, he bemoans the state of the world and the state of his own soul. He acknowledges that he has turned his back on God and religion. But then he comes to the chorus. You won't find me in church or reading the Bible, but I am still here. I'm still your disciple. I'm down on my knees. I'm begging you, please. I'm broken, alone, afraid. Maybe I'll pray. Pray. Maybe I'll pray for a glimmer of hope. I've never believed in you. No, but maybe I'll pray. Now, I don't know enough about Sam Smith to know what's going on in his heart, but it sounds like what's going on is that having faced the reality of the world and his own brokenness, he may finally be in a place where he's ready to turn and look to someone who might be greater and better than he is. Now, we can only hope and pray that Sam Smith and our nation and our world will seize moments like that. But it certainly has to begin with us. Begin with people who are willing to name it, lament it, and turn from it to the one who made us in the beginning and knows how to put us back together again. And so that's what the season of Lent is all about. That's what this journey is going to be about these next several weeks, beginning this Wednesday evening. And I'm inviting you, I'm encouraging you to make that journey with us. Don't give up on us. Don't walk out. We cannot give up on each other or God or this moment because I believe he has something important to do in us so that we can do something important for the world. So let's get the season started by turning to God today, right now, and taking words with us. 
Each week in this series, we would like to conclude with a moment of confession and lament and repentance, a prayer and a song that might express ourselves to God. So we're going to, in just a moment, across all our campuses and venues, we're going to pray a prayer out loud together as one united community. And then we'll close. So would you join me, wherever you are, in praying this prayer? Holy and loving God, we confess that we have been unfaithful to you and to one another. We have not loved you with our hearts and souls and minds and strength and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We lament the hurt we have inflicted on ourselves and others, and the damage we have done to this world you have made. Recognizing that we are broken and unable to help or fix ourselves, we turn back to you and ask you to receive us graciously, to forgive our sins, and to make us and our world whole again. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Lord, we are grateful for these moments to come together as a community of faith, of fellow travelers, and yes, even of sinners, but ones who are grateful to be forgiven, ones who are eager to be made new, individually and collectively. So we pray that you would meet us, that you would heal us, that you would enable us to be your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.